0: All right, good morning. Good morning, Weymouth. We'll get started. Hey, Paul. Good morning. That's good. All right, well, we will uh, get started here this morning. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. All right, welcome to Weymouth. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. Thanks for... uh, Joining us on this snowy January morning, uh, as we get started in worship, we'll uh, just spend a few moments in, in silent prayer and reflection, then we'll sing a couple, si- a couple songs together, have some announcements and a children's lesson, uh, another song, and then a, a sermon, and we'll, we'll close with music as well and, and singing. So as we get started, let's just bow our heads for a moment of silent prayer and reflection. Father, help us to do just that this morning. Help us to bless you, to praise you because of who you are, because of all the gracious benefits you have given to us in your Son. Forgiveness and redemption, steadfast love and mercy, satisfy us with your goodness this morning. Renew us as we praise you and as we sit under your word for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
1: Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his soul. your face.
0: Well, welcome, and thanks again for being here. And as we continue on in worship, uh, we just have a few announcements uh, to make you aware of here this morning. Uh, the first is that a week from today, uh, the 28th, we will be having a congregational meeting after the service. This is our our annual meeting where. Uh, We get to to reflect on God's goodness and grace to us as a church family this past year. So we'll we'll talk about the financial report from last year. We'll uh, give some ministry updates. We'll talk about uh, our prayerful goals for the next year and beyond as a church family. And uh, next week we'll also be asking the members to uh, affirm our our budget for the year, some financial stuff for the year. Uh, But we'll also be asking the the members to affirm three uh, elder candidates uh, and those those three are Russ Kinnebrew, Jim Stevens, and Tom Lazio. And, and Russ and Jim are, are we're, we're presenting them to be reaffirmed. They've been serving with us as elders faithfully for a number of years, and uh, their their term is up. So we're, we're asking for them to be reaffirmed. And Tom, uh, we're presenting as, as a first time elder candidate. And as we do that, just as a reminder, uh, the the role of elder, the office of elder in this church is it's it's an office of, of is to be a shepherd to be an under-shepherd of Christ, to be called by God to, to serve and shepherd and care for his people. So this isn't a political office. It's not a popularity contest. You're not, you're not voting for a representative on the board. It's different than some of the ways we think about voting. We're not, at the, at the congregational meeting, we're not asking the members to vote for a particular person but we'll be presenting these candidates pending uh, approval from the nominating committee, or pending approval from the full current team of elders. We'll be presenting them to members to be affirmed as elders, to rejoice and together say with God, yes, we see your calling on these men's lives to serve as our shepherds and to submit to their leadership. Um, so that's what we're doing together next week. It's gonna be an important meeting, so we'll be providing refreshments because we know it's hard to, to stay after service and, uh, and, and miss lunch or bleed into lunch with some of that, so we'll be providing that, and that that meeting is open to to members, to attenders, to anybody who would like to, uh, because it's a vital thing we get to do together as a church family. So that'll be happening next Sunday after the service. And then uh, another thing that is happening not uh, next week, but in the coming weeks is next month on February 16th, our Weymouth students will be having an all-nighter here at the church from 7 to 7 that Friday night, February 16th, into Saturday morning. So we did that last year. It was a, a great time a fun time. We'll be doing uh, some team competitions, maybe some Nerf Wars, some different games and things, as well as we'll have some, some teaching and some devotionals that will happen throughout the night. So uh, that's, that's a great time. It's going to be a, a good opportunity for students. If you have any questions about that, you can ask AJ here on my left. He leads our Weymouth Students Ministries. More about that. Uh, but that's coming up in February. And then also finally, our uh, Tough Text class has started. It started this past Wednesday and this morning, and this is a class on the different uh, tough or challenging or confusing, controversial passages of the Bible. So it's a great class to to be a part of if there's particular passages you struggle with or if you have uh, friends and family that have have brought up questions about the Bible or questions about different passages, our hope is to grow together in our love for God's Word and our confidence in our God's Word and our ability to not only study it for ourselves but share it with others. So that has started, that'll be happening every Wednesday at 6.30, along with our prayer meeting with Weymouth kids, with Weymouth students at 6.30 on Wednesdays, and then also uh, at 9 a.m. on Sundays. And I just wanted to highlight that again for one more week to remind, to remind you all that the Sunday session of that class, it's Wednesday night, Sunday morning, each, each class is doing the same text, but uh, the Sunday one is open to students. So if you're a middle schooler, if you're a high schooler, uh, and you're going to Weymouth students on Wednesday nights, you're welcome to come to that class On Sunday mornings at 9 here. Uh, So in light of all of that, in light of what God is doing in in and through us as a church family, let's uh, bow and pray together. Well, gracious Father, we thank you for how you have united us in Christ, for how you have knit us together as uh, a body, as a family. We thank you for the chance we have to bless you together, to praise you this morning through our words, through our singing, but also through our actions, through our life together in community. So help us to live that out both this morning and this week and beyond. As we anticipate this meeting next Sunday, we just pray that you'll give us wisdom and grace as we uh, make decisions, as we affirm elders and budget stuff, financial stuff, as we uh, prayerfully think together about the opportunities you have brought us as a church and in this community. Help us to steward those opportunities well as your people to to go out together, to glorify your name by serving and pointing others to you. So help us to think well about how to do that with the resources you've given us, with the opportunities you've given us. So go before us, prepare us uh, for that meeting next week, and also go before our our student ministry uh, with AJ and our volunteers and our parents and our students. And uh, as they meet week by week, along with Weymouth Kids, we just pray that more and more kids and students will come to know you. We'll grow in Christ, we'll grow together uh, towards maturity in Christ. That you'll bless this all-nighter as a fun night, as an instructive and encouraging night. And, and you'll continue to grow students in and through that ministry, Lord. And we pray as we seek to study your word and handle the challenging passages, the confusing passages, as we seek to share it with others, Lord, that you'll grow our confidence in, in your word and its authority, its sufficiency, its inspiration. Help us as we come under your word This morning, show us more clearly our sin. Help us to turn away from all the ways we've been trusting in other idols or uh, seeking to find satisfaction in in sinful or rebellious ways. Help us to turn turn away from those things and to submit to your word, to see how your word points us to Jesus, our Savior, who redeems us, who cleanses us, who renews us, who restores us. Lord, so show us these things and help us to, to praise and bless you in response. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite all the kids now to come on up to the front. We'll do our, our, our children's lesson here this morning before we send you out to Weymouth Kids. So come on up. Have a seat on the stage here. Very nice. All right. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Welcome. Hey, hey. Ooh, beautiful. I love it. All right. Well, good to see you all once again. I like the Cleveland Monsters hat. That's awesome. Um... Well, we started a new thing last week. We started a new uh, series for these kids' lessons on Sunday mornings where we are going through the attributes of God together. You know, we talk about the attributes of God. These are different characteristics of God. These different things we learn from the Bible about who God is and what that means for us. We are. We're going through the ABCs. I don't know if that's the best idea, but as you'll see today, sometimes you got to get a little finicky with it. But uh, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to try and go A to Z and find a different attribute of God for every letter of the alphabet. You think we can do that? Yep. You think it's possible? You think we got yep. it? I think so, too. So last week we looked at the letter A. We talked about how God is almighty, how there's nothing he cannot do. And this week, our letter is what comes after. What comes after A? Do you B. guys know B? That's right. B comes. I almost forgot for a second. Uh, the letter B comes after the letter A. And our, and again, this is a little finicky. But our word for today is that God is worthy to be blessed. We've already sung about this. We've already talked, read right about this this morning. But when we talk about God, God is worthy to be blessed. And to help us think or about that, I very good I have a question for you guys. If you guys have somebody in your life that you love, a parent, a grandparent, a sibling, a friend, what are some of the ways that you guys show them that you love them? You show that person that you love them. What are some things you can do? Yeah. To take care of them? Yeah, you can take care of them. You can serve them, right? Yeah. Wash the dishes. You can wash the dishes. Oh yeah, it's a good no, don't say that publicly, because people will hold you to that. Right? <laughs> Yeah, there you go. What are, some other, what are some other things you can do to show the people you love that you love them, that you care about them? This side, to side. Yeah. A gift or a card. Yeah, you can give them a gift. You can give them a card, write them a letter. You could, you could write, write how you feel or show them how you feel in a gift. Yeah.
1: Um, cook for them. You can
0: cook for them. Wow, that'd be awesome. That's cool. Right, you can do all these practical ways through your words, through your actions. You can do all these different things to show people that you love them. And when we say we do that, we say you could one word you could use for that is blessing. You could say you are blessing them. You are showing that person how important they are to you, how, how much you love them, how worthwhile they are to you. And the Bible says that we we can do the things in an even we can do that in an even greater, more wonderful, more powerful way for God. You know, we read this morning, Psalm 103, where uh, David, writing in that psalm, he tells himself, he's talking to himself, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And when he's saying, bless the Lord, he's saying, praise the Lord. That word praise means we, we tell God how much we love him. We tell God how great he is, how awesome he is, how worthy he is. And so when we say that God is worthy to be blessed, what we're saying is God is worthy to be praised. That God is, he is greater than anyone else in existence. He is greater even than our parents and our grandparents and our teachers and our friends and the, the athletes we like to follow or the characters on TV. Or who, He is the, the greatest being in existence. He's our creator. He's the one who made us. He's the one who loved us and sent his son for us. And so he is perfectly worthy to be blessed. I'm not always worthy. When my you know daughters write me a card or my wife gives me a gift, I'm not always worthy of those gifts because I, I mess up, I do foolish things, I, I sin, I'm not perfect. But God is perfect, and He's He never fails, He never makes mistakes. So if there's one person who's completely worthy, who completely deserves to be praised, to be told how great He is, how much we love Him, it's God. And the Bible actually tells us that you and I, we were created. To bless God. We were created to, to praise God. The purpose of our lives is to bring him glory, is to bless his name, to live, and through our words, through our actions, to tell God how great he is, how much we love him. And that's why we do this on Sundays. I don't know if you've ever wondered why you come to this building on Sundays with your parents or your grandparents, and you sing songs, and you hear some weird guy talk about the Bible for a little bit, right? And, and you go to class and stuff. The reason that we do this is because as Christians, as a church, as a family, Together, we know that we're called to bless God. We know that we're called to praise him. And so we sing songs to praise him. We listen to the instruction and teaching from his word. We love and serve one another. And we do all of that to to praise God, to bless God, to show God how much we love him, how worthy he is of our praise, how great he is. And so that's why we do that. We don't do this because it, it checks something off the list or because it makes us better people. We do this because we believe that God is worthy to be blessed. He's worthy of all of our praise. Nice. You okay? Yeah. You good? All right. Any other questions before we pray? All right, because Let me. Be, be,
1: because, almost because, almost tough because, almost, because I knee it into a brick. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah. You are. You are. You're a tough kid, man. I love that about you. All right. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we, we, we praise you this morning because you are worthy to be blessed. You deserve all of our blessings, all of our, our words of praise, our actions of praise, our service. So help us to praise you. Help us to, to, to show you how, how great we think we, you are, how much we love you because of how you have loved us and your son. Help us to show others how great you are, by how we love them and serve them and care for them and tell them about Jesus. And help us to continue to praise you now. As a church family, through our songs, through our words, through our actions, through sitting under Your Word, help us to do all this for Your glory, to bless and praise Your name, because You are ultimately worthy to be blessed. And so we praise You in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right, whoa, scary. All right, guys, go line up between behind Mr. and Mrs. Name. If you can go to Weymouth, kids, and the rest of us, let's stand and bless the Lord together. <laughs>
1: omnipotent hand when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply the flame shall not hurt thee I owe I go to refine you are wonderful, you are amazing, you are mighty, you are worthy to be blessed, Lord. As we continue to worship you here this morning, I pray that, um, that your wisdom would, would um, be made clear to us today, Lord, that you would uh, teach us from your word, and, and that we would be attentive to what you have to teach us and carry it with us throughout the rest of our lives, Lord. Uh, pray all this in your name, amen.
0: You may be seated. Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, book of 1 Peter. We finished our series in Micah last Sunday, and so now we're uh, jumping from the end of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament this morning. So 1 Peter, it's one of the uh, epistles or letters we find in the New Testament. It follows the book of James. It precedes the book of 2 Peter. How about that? That makes sense? Um... And then after that, we have the, first, the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation. So 1st Peter, it's towards the end of your Bible. If you're, you're looking at your Bible, it's kind of like this. If you're trying to find a spot for it, it's kind of towards the very, very end there. 1st uh, Peter, it's one of the letters that we have. I've been really excited for this Sunday. I've been excited to uh get into first Peter with y'all. I've had the opportunity, the privilege to be reading this book through with a couple of guys over this past year and it's just been a huge encouragement to me personally. And I also don't know uh, if there is a a more helpful book. I mean all of the Bible is, is helpful to us, but for the times that we are living in, the world that we are living in, what it what it what Peter provides in this book, the encouragement, the instructions for how we live as believers in a fallen, hostile world. I don't know if there's a more timely or relevant book to the church today, um, so we'll be we'll be going through First Peter this morning. We'll just look at the introduction here, verses uh, one to two of chapter one, and then uh, next week we'll have uh, the privilege of of getting to hear our very own uh, AJ Coy open up uh, the Word with us. He'll be uh, preaching through uh, the next section, First Peter three uh, to twelve for us, and so we're excited to, to see that. And, and I bring that up uh, just as a reminder that uh, AJ's here, and he's, he's, he's our worship president, but he, he leads our music team, he leads our Weymouth students' ministry, and so we're really thankful for AJ and all that he does. Uh, but the reason we have AJ here is not just so that he can come and do things for us, although we are really thankful for the things he does for us, uh, the reason, a big reason AJ is here is because uh, he, he, you know, he's a young guy who is uh, investigating a call to ministry, uh, when, someone's, when someone's going into ministry we, see, we say that that is, a, that is a calling that is something God is calling them to do to go into pastoral ministry and, and as a church part of what our privilege is part of what our calling is is to be a church that, is, that grows people that, that sends people or grows them up into to ministry whether that's here whether that's other places and so we have the opportunity to do that with AJ he's been going through this residency the last 8-9 months and uh, seeing this call growing through music ministry, youth ministry and so now we want to give him the opportunity to, to preach next week. Because uh, part of the way we, we test a calling to ministry, part of the thing, one of the requirements that we want to see in a person who is called to ministry is that are they able to preach? Are they able to teach? Not are they the best preacher or teacher ever, which I'm sure you guys know from hearing me every week, right? But uh, are, they able to, are they able to handle the word of God and share it with others? And so we'll be doing that with A.J. next week. We'll be, able, we'll be celebrating that privilege that we have as a church to help him investigate that call to ministry. Now, that is, that is not an excuse next week to come up to A.J. with your report cards afterwards and with all your thoughts and opinions about his personality and his weird verbal tics and all the things that he does. Uh, we, we, not that you do those things, but I do those things. Um, right? But it's an invitation for you to be praying for A.J., this week as he prepares, but also be praying for him in general as he continues to investigate this call as he continues to serve with us and what that might mean for himself and for the kingdom. It's also a good opportunity to remember to be praying for us to be a church that continues to grow, develop, and send people out um, because that's something we always want to be here at Weymouth. And if you ever have questions about that, if you ever are, are thinking about ministry and what that might mean or have a call or, or send some sort of call or know somebody who might like the door is always open to, to talk to me, talk to one of the elders about it, because this is a part of our life together as a church, is equipping and developing one another. So, so that'll be next week, but uh, before we get there, let me set the table for us this morning in First 1 Peter 1, to 1-2. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, as we come to your word now, Lord, give us humility, give us clarity, help us to see clearly, who you are. Help us not to come to this as a book that's ultimately about ourselves, but help us to come to this as a book that is ultimately about you. Help us to see who you are, what you have done for us in your son, and what that means for us as we live together in this world for your glory. To help us now we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, like a lot of people who. Went to college in the late 2000s. When I was in college, I spent a lot of time listening to the band Mumford and Sons. Right? I don't know if you've heard of this. They're a rock folk band. They're a bit, you know, really big in the late 2000s, early 2010s. I still don't know what to call those decades. But uh, I spent a lot of time as a college student with my, you know, roommates or different people listening to their first two big albums. And in fact, to this day, one of my favorite songs of all time is a song by Mumford and Sons called "The Cave." called The Cave, and in the course of that song, Marcus Mumford, who's the lead singer, the songwriter for the band, he sings these words, he, he sings, but I will hold on hope, and I won't let you choke on the noose around your neck. It's kind of a, kind of bleak words for a chorus, now that I say it out loud in front of all of you, um, and I'm not saying, and I don't think that Marcus Mumford, when he was writing that song, writing those lyrics, I don't think he had the book of First Peter in mind. But as I was listening to those words recently, I couldn't uh, help but think about Peter's letter here to a group of churches in Asia Minor over 2,000 years ago. Because in this letter, Peter, he is writing to a group of believers who, in a sense, had a noose around their necks. He's writing to a group of churches that were living in a culture that was becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. He's writing to believers who every day... We're facing more and more formal and informal persecution for their faith, from their governing authorities, from their neighbors, from the people around them. He's writing to a church that is facing hostility and hardship for their faith. And as he writes to this church that, in a sense, has a noose around its neck, he writes to them and he encourages them to hold on hope. He encourages them to cling to the eternal hope that they have in Christ, this hope that is imperishable, even as they face the present reality of suffering and persecution. And as he does so in this letter, Peter reminds his readers that they are exiles, that they are exiles, they are strangers and sojourners in the world. And so as exiles, they're not called to flee the world, they're not called to try and uh, defeat or take over the world or conquer the world know as exiles, they are called they are called to live for Christ in the world, to live as people who have an uh, imperishable hope, even in the face of hostility. To put it simply, First Peter is a letter for exiles. It's a letter for exiles. It is a charge for chosen exiles to stand firm in the hope of God's grace even as we face the hostility of the world. So we see in 1 Peter, it's a charge for chosen exiles to stand firm in the hope of God's grace as we face the hostility of the world. That's a sentence that we'll repeat, that's a theme that we'll see as we go through this letter. Because this charge that Peter gives to his original audience, it's, it's just as relevant for us today as it was for the churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. Because we too, if we are in Christ, if we are believers, we too are living as exiles in the world. We are also living as those who have an imperishable hope, even in the midst of a hostile world. So let's dive into this letter here. Let's look at this introduction together about this letter for exiles by looking first at the author of this letter, secondly at the audience of this letter and finally at the aim of this letter so first the author in verse 1 the author of this letter it's identified for us as Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ now if you've ever read the bible before or watched christian you know bible movies or been around church at all you've heard this name Peter it's a familiar name to many of us we know that Peter he's one of the 12 disciples He was one of Jesus' twelve followers that he called in the Gospels. In fact, Peter was part of almost this inner ring of three disciples that we see in the Gospels of Peter, James, and John. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. In fact, as we read the Gospels, we see that Peter was often the boldest or the most outspoken of the disciples. He was the, the quickest to open his mouth, he was also the quickest to put his foot in his mouth, oftentimes. As we read through books like Mark, we see that Peter was the the first of the disciples to recognize Jesus as the Christ in Mark 8. But then he was also quickly rebuked by Jesus because Peter tried to rebuke Jesus when Jesus predicted his crucifixion. Peter ultimately, famously, at the end of the Gospels, he denied Christ three times. After Jesus was arrested in the garden, even though Peter had boldly promised to never abandon Jesus... When faced with the question of his relationship to Jesus, Peter denied Christ three times in one night. He utterly failed his Savior. He utterly denied Christ because he was afraid of suffering the same fate that Jesus was facing. He was afraid of sharing in Christ's suffering. But then, as we read at the end of John's Gospel, after Jesus had risen again, after he had died on the cross and come back to life, at the end of the book of John, he restores Peter. Jesus restores Peter after uh, asking him three times, "Simon, do you love me? Do you love me?" And in restoring Peter, Jesus he also instructs him, he commissions him to feed his sheep, to tend his lambs. And so, even though Peter spectacularly failed Jesus, he was still restored and commissioned by the risen Christ. And so then we can jump ahead to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2, where we find Peter boldly preaching to a crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, on the day when in Jerusalem the Holy Spirit fell upon the 12 disciples and, and they started preaching in other tongues. We have Peter's sermon, the first Christian sermon in the Bible, where he preaches to the crowds and he declares to them boldly, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He also says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see Peter, he he boldly proclaims Christ. He he heals people. He opens the door to preaching to the Gentiles. But throughout the book of Acts, Peter, he's also persecuted for his faith. He's even arrested for the sake of Christ. appears before judges and magistrates. And history tells us that Peter was ultimately killed for his faith. He was ultimately executed in the mid-60s AD during the persecution of Emperor Nero. And so this forces us to ask the question, how did this bold disciple who once denied Christ three times because he was afraid of suffering for Christ, how did he become this bold apostle who was willing to suffer and be imprisoned and die even for the sake of Christ? who was able to write this letter in which one of the major themes is how we as believers handle suffering for the sake of good, handle suffering for the sake of Christ. How did Peter go from where we see him in the Gospels to where we see him in the book of Acts and where we see him in this letter? Well, the thing that made the difference in Peter's life, that completely transformed him, it's it's what he preached about in Acts 2. It was the resurrection of Christ. Because in the resurrection, after the resurrection, Peter came to truly understand Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Lord, as our Savior. It was after the resurrection that Peter himself was restored and was confirmed. And so we're not surprised when we see that the resurrection was the central theme in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. It's a thing he stakes everything on. It changes everything for him. And as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, we'll see that not only was the resurrection uh, the central theme of his sermon in Acts 2, we'll also see that the resurrection is central to the message of 1 Peter. We'll see that it is the imperishable living hope that we have in the risen Christ. It is this that allows us to stand firm in the face of hostility. Because you see, what we'll see in this letter is that the power that transformed Peter it can also transform us. That the risen Christ, he had the authority and the compassion to restore Peter from total failure, to equip and empower Peter through his spirit to be this bold messenger, this bold witness to the resurrection, to take this fearful disciple and make him a faithful apostle. And if the risen Christ can do that for Peter, he can certainly do that for you and I. No matter our fears, no matter our failures, no matter how great those things are, if we look to Christ, if we trust in his perfect work, if we uh, live in faith in his resurrection power to bring life out of death, to bring strength out of weakness, then in Christ, in this living hope, we too can have strength and security to be bold witnesses for Christ, witnesses to his resurrection, even. In the face of suffering and persecution and hostility, the same thing that transformed Peter can transform us, and it's Christ. It's the risen Christ. But not only did the power of Christ's resurrection transform Peter himself, it also gave Peter his unique authority as an apostle. As an apostle here, he introduces himself in this introduction as an apostle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this word apostle, it's another one of these churchy words that we throw around sometimes, and it's helpful to clarify what it means. Because the word itself, apostle, it means simply sent one. It means one who is sent, a messenger who is sent. But in the New Testament, this word uh, apostle, it doesn't, it's not used just to refer to someone who's sent to deliver a message. In the New Testament, specifically, when it's talking about the 12 apostles, Peter and the other disciples who are commissioned by Christ, it's referring to an office. It's referring to a unique office of those who had been personally given authority by the risen Christ himself. Who had been personally charged and commissioned by Jesus to speak his word. And so this term apostle, this office of apostle, applied to the the 12 disciples who saw the risen Christ, the original 11, and then Matthias who replaced Judas. It also applies to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles who was personally commissioned by the risen Christ who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. These are what we talk about when we talk about the apostles in Scripture. This was a unique office for those who physically saw and were commissioned by the risen Christ, who were empowered by the Spirit to speak God's Word. And so when Peter identifies himself as an apostle here, he's reminding his readers of his authority it's likely that peter hadn't yet met many of the believers he had, he hadn't yet visited many of the churches that he's writing to in asia minor in this letter but they certainly would have been aware of his status in the church of his leadership of his authority as one of the apostles and so right away we see that this letter this isn't just a collection of peter's good advice for the church This isn't just a a letter, this isn't just a message of what Peter thinks they should do or some some vague encouragements from a a guy who's been a Christian for a long time. No, this letter is an apostolic charge. This letter is an authoritative instruction from one who has been given authority by Christ himself, who has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak God's word. When we read this letter, we are reading human words written by a human man to a particular human audience. We are also reading the word of God because Peter's words were inspired by the Holy Spirit that God himself spoke through Peter in the message of this letter. And so this letter reveals God's truth to us today. It has something to say for us today just as it did for its original recipient, its original audience. As, as, as has been said, that uh, while First Peter was not written to us, it was written for us. It is God's word to us today. It has something to reveal to us about who God is. But in order to understand what it means for us today, we also have to understand what it meant for them there and then, what it meant for that original audience. And so we read First Peter, and as we study it together, we're going to try and make sense of what it has to teach us about who God is about what he has done for us in Christ and how that hope hope holds us up even in a hostile world, holds us up even as we deal with temptation and sin in our hearts. And So because this is God's word, because uh, it is given to us by the Holy Spirit through Peter writing to an original audience, what it meant for them also has something to say for us. But we also need to think carefully about who Peter's audience was about who he identifies them to be and why he's writing them this letter. And so we want to look not just at who the author of this letter was, but also what do we learn about its audience? Secondly, its audience. And Peter tells us right away, he identifies his audience as elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, he's writing here to a collection of churches in different regions all throughout Norja, northern Asia Minor what we now consider modern-day Turkey. That's the area he's writing to. He's writing to a collection of churches there, and he identifies the believers in these churches in a unique way. He identifies them as elect exiles. Elect exiles. In just those two words, Peter, he says a whole lot about who these believers are. First, he says that they are elect. They are elect, meaning that they are chosen. They are chosen by God. Peter, he starts off this letter by reminding his readers that they are, are, are not exiles, they're not believers by accident. That their circumstances, their situation, it's not a result of random chance. These believers are elect, they've been chosen by God himself. That it was God who sovereignly chose to bring them to himself, to unite them together in his church and to place them in their particular place at their particular time. So these believers are elect, but not only are they elect, they are also exiles. He calls them exiles. Now in biblical terms, an exile uh, was someone who was living in a foreign land. You know, someone who was a stranger or an alien. Someone who was living in a land that was not their home. If you've ever visited a foreign country, then you've experienced a sense of of what it feels like to be an exile, even if maybe you're just a tourist on vacation. But that that strangeness, that feeling of of being in a different culture that almost feels alien because they speak a different language or they have different values or different customs. Peter writes and says to his his readers that we are all exiles. He'll say in chapter 2 that we are sojourners, that we are exiles, that we are aliens in a foreign land. That's who he identifies his audience to be. And that's that's a big deal because exile was a big theme, is a big theme in the Bible. Especially as we look at the Old Testament, we see uh, lots of allusions to this theme of exile. And in fact, there came a point in the history of Israel in the Old Testament where God's people themselves, because of their sin, were exiled. We saw in the book of Micah how Micah was promising this, was predicting this, how because of their sin and idolatry, the Israelites were exiled. They were sent out of the promised land, captured and sent into other nations like Babylon and Assyria and Persia. And in that context, we have whole books of the Bible written in that time, what we call the exilic literature in the Bible. Books like Daniel and Esther, where we read about how God used faithful servants like Daniel, like Esther, like Mordecai, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these, these faithful servants within exile, within Babylon, within Persia, he used them to preserve his promises for his people, even as they dwelt in a foreign land. And these, these figures in the Old Testament, they, like Daniel and Esther, they remained faithful to God, even as they were exiles, even as they were foreigners and strangers, as aliens in a foreign land. They were faithful to God. They refused to bow down to foreign idols. But they also lived as exiles with wisdom. They wisely navigated how to live for God, how to engage with their culture, how to live for God and obey him in a foreign land. And ultimately, how they were used by God to bless even the foreign places that they had been exiled to. And this is the picture that Peter taps into in his letter here. He tells his readers that they, like Daniel and Esther, are exiles in a foreign land. That they too are called to stay faithful to God even in the face of persecution. But they are also called to live wisely and faithfully in a way that honors God even in exile. In a way that even blesses and points those around them to Christ. Even as they persecute and abuse them. You see, Peter's point here at the very beginning of this letter is that believers are exiles in the world. He refers to them as, dis- as the dispersion, a term which means those who are scattered, those who are spread out in a foreign land, those whose ultimate home is heaven, who are foreigners and sojourners in the world. And this truth doesn't just apply to Peter's original readers here, it applies to all believers throughout history. To be a Christian, to be a believer in Christ is to be an exile in the world. It's to be a stranger, a sojourner, an alien in a foreign land. Even if you lived in the same town all your life, if you are in Christ, then then this world is not your ultimate home. If you are in Christ, then our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate allegiance, it belongs to the kingdom of God. Our ultimate allegiance does not belong to a particular country or culture in the world because we are exiles. As a church, we need to remember this. We need to remember this. We are exiles in the world because uh, as we live in the world, as we see the way the world has fallen, as we see the way our culture might be changing from what we're used to, as we see the ways that our world or our culture seems increasingly strange to us, increasingly hostile to what we believe, is we see that it's natural to feel afraid. It's natural to feel anxious about what is going on, about what the future might bring, about what does it mean for my kids or my grandkids or my job or myself. There's a lot of fear that can come into that. But Peter's letter reminds us here that what we are facing is not a new development. What we are facing is the default setting. This is how Christians have always lived in the world. From the very beginning of the church, Christians have always been exiles in the world. There has never been a country or a culture that, that is our home. We've always been strangers and aliens in a foreign land. We've always been citizens of the kingdom of God scattered amongst the kingdoms of the world. There's never been a country or a culture that perfectly lined up with the kingdom of God. There's never been a place or a culture where Christians could feel completely comfortable, completely at ease within that culture. If that was ever true, then that means something is wrong. Right? There are certainly, and I'll say that, there have certainly been times and places, and we are ourselves the beneficiaries of this, where Christians, where the church had more freedom, had more freedom, more opportunities, more blessings. There's definitely a lot of good that comes with that. There's also challenges that come with that. And I think in particular, in our context, in the West, even in the U.S., where the church has historically enjoyed a lot of freedom, a lot of comfort for a long time, that a major challenge of that freedom and comfort is that we, it's easy to forget our true identity as exiles. It's easy to start to mingle our Christian identity with our cultural or political or national identity identity. It becomes far too easy to combine our human culture with the kingdom of God, to see our country as a Christian nation or to, expect our culture to, or to expect our culture to respect our biblical values and beliefs. And if that's happening, if that intermingling is happening, if we forget our true status as exiles, if that's our norm, forget that, then when culture changes, When the world around us, the culture that we have seen intermingled with our faith, when it changes, when we see our faith or our values rejected in the wider culture, it can feel like the sky is falling. It can feel like we're losing our country, we're losing our our home, that everything is falling apart. And if we're in that place of destabilization, if we're in that place of, of fear of seeing that change happen, what can happen is we can become vulnerable. As believers, as human beings, we can become vulnerable to political or social or cultural movements that tell us, oh, we just need to take our country back. We need to vote for this person who's going to restore our comfort or restore our power or our privilege. Movements that tell us we can conquer culture, we become vulnerable to that. Or we become vulnerable vulnerable to messages and movements that tell us we should just go along with culture. We should just adapt our values and our beliefs to line up with what culture believes and what culture thinks, that we should uh, just adjust to a changing culture, even at the cost of our convictions, because we just want affirmation or comfort from the world. But to be in exile is to avoid falling on both sides, because to recognize that we are exiles means that we recognize the world is always going to look strange to us. And it's to recognize that we are always going to look strange to the world. That's the expectation. That's the norm. That's what it means to be a sojourner, to be an alien in a foreign world. And so to be an exile is to recognize that in Christ our call is not to go and conquer the world. But also our call is not to capitulate to the world. Our call is is, is to live for Christ in the world. We're not called to conquer, we're not called to capitulate, but we're called to to wisely and faithfully and humbly figure out from the word of God, how do we live in this world? How do we honor Christ? How do we love our neighbors? How do we share the truth of the gospel with people? How do we live wisely for Christ in this world, even when that means we will face hostility and persecution? And so if we remember this truth that we are exiles in the world, and the strangeness or the fallenness of, of the world around us, it may grieve us, but it should never surprise us. It should never surprise us because we are living in a foreign land. This world is not our home. This country, this culture, it's not our hope. And what's so comforting about 1 Peter is it reminds us that this status of exile, this is how Christians have always lived in the world. This has always been what it means to be in Christ. As we feel the strangeness of our exile, as we endure hostility of the world, we can take comfort that the believers in Peter's day, in Asia Minor, they were facing the same exact things. Maybe different issues, different technology, obviously different culture, but they were facing the same hostility, the same challenges. In Christ, we were part of the same great heritage that they were. The same lineage of exile. We are part of, this, we are citizens of the same eternal kingdom. And so we're not alone. And also, we have fellowship, we have unity with other believers in other countries throughout the world who are far more familiar with this idea than we are. In places like Iran and North Korea and India and China and North Africa, where they don't doubt that they're exiles, they're not expecting their culture and their world to, to match up with their beliefs. They know it because they're suffering for it. And so as we see maybe hints of that in our own time or changes of that in our own time, we need to remember that, that we're not alone. That the Bible has a lot to say about what it's like to live in exile. That we may be more like the early church than we ever realized. And that's not a bad thing because it was in the early church and how they suffered, how they endured persecution and hostility, that's how God grew the church. We wouldn't be here in this church today if it weren't for believers like Peter, for believers in Asia Minor who are willing to suffer for their faith and even die for it so that other people could know Christ. We are part of a great heritage. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we run into persecution or we seek it out. But if we remember that this is what it means to be a Christian, that we have hope in Christ even as we live as exiles in the world, that we can see the opportunities before us that there are actually just as many, if not more, opportunities now than there were 2,000 years ago to point people to Christ, to point people to his kingdom. Because what, what Peter had to say to these exiles back then, the encouragement, the instruction, it's so vitally true, so vitally important for us as exiles today. So let's look briefly about a little bit of the instruction that he gives them, because when we look at this instruction what we find is we find three foundational truths about why we are exiles in the world. And these truths, they declare to us, they point us to the unshakable hope that holds us up even as we live in a hostile world. So look with me at verse 2, where Peter, he, he tells his readers that, yes, they are exiles, but they are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This word foreknowledge here, we we hear this word commonly refers to thinking about, it refers to knowing something before it happens. Knowing that something is going to happen before it happens. But when we read about this word in Scripture, in the Bible, when this word is applied to God, it means uh, more than just that God knows what's going to happen in the future. When when we say that God uh, foreknew something in the Bible, we're not just saying that he saw it coming. We're saying that he caused it to happen. That God foreknowing something doesn't just mean that God uh, knew it's going to come, but God is the actual cause of that thing. He is the one who planned it. He is the one who carried it out. And so Peter is saying here in verse 2 that believers are exiles because God has caused us to be exiles. Because God has chosen us that we are uh, in him, with him, and so we are dispersed as foreigners in the world. Because God has brought us to himself. He has brought us into a different world kingdom and so of course we look like strangers to the world because we don't belong to the world we are those who have been chosen by god in christ he has sovereignly chosen us and united us together in his church and he has put us exactly where he wants us when he wants us for the purpose that he has for us and that's essential to remember because the challenges the changes in our world can feel overwhelming It can feel overwhelming until we remember that there is a greater power involved, that there is a greater author who is writing this story, who is moving and shaping things according to his sovereign will, according to his sovereign grace. see, God's sovereignty, his power, his faithfulness, none of that can be undone by anything we see in this world, by persecution or hostility, even death can't undo it. So whatever happens with uh, elections or economies or disasters or wars or persecutions, it's all under his sovereign control. He is overseeing, ruling over all of it. And he has sovereignly chosen his church and placed us in the world as exiles in order to bring him glory and in order to point other people to him. And we know this because Peter, he goes on to tell us, that these believers are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification of the Spirit. That's another one of these big churchy words here that are helpful to define. So when we use this word sanctification, we are talking about the process of Christians growing in holiness, of growing in maturity, growing more like Christ. And Peter reminds us here that sanctification is not ultimately a work we do alone by going to church and reading our Bibles and doing good things. No, sanctification, this process of maturity, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work that God himself does in us by his Spirit. Because it is the Spirit of God who works in our hearts, who, who, who leads us to faith in Christ, who uh, applies the grace of the Father and the work of Christ to our hearts so that we can even become Christians. And then it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and and helps those who trust Christ to live in obedience to Christ, to grow more like Christ, to turn away from sin and live in obedience. And so not only are believers elect exiles, we are also empowered exiles. We don't walk through this foreign land alone. We walk in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, who is working in us to make us more like Christ, even through trials and persecutions. And the Spirit does all this, as Peter puts it, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. See, the Spirit, he's working in believers to lead us into a growing, progressive obedience to Christ, to become more like him more and more as we are sanctified to live faithfully for Christ, even in a fallen world. The Holy Spirit's helping us to do this. But the only way that, the only reason that this is possible is that believers have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And here, Peter, he taps into another image from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus, where in Exodus 24, 3-8, Moses, he, he gives the people of Israel the word of the Lord, the law. And then after he gives it to him, he builds an altar and he sacrifices some oxen to the Lord on the altar. And then he takes the blood of this offering. It's kind of a crazy scene. It's kind of out of a horror movie. He he takes the blood of this offering and he throws half of it on the altar and he throws half of it on the people. He sprinkles them with the blood of the offering and he says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And this word covenant just refers to a promise that is made between two parties. In the Old Testament, God, he made a covenant, a promise with the people of Israel to be their God, to deliver them, to lead them into the promised land. And this covenant was sprinkled, it was sealed with blood taken from a sacrificial offering. And Peter then uses this image to describe how believers have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. He reminds us how Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood and gave his life as the ultimate sacrificial offering for our sin how jesus shed his blood for us and cleanses us from our sin if we place our faith in him because he died for us our sins in our place he bore the death and the judgment that we deserve and so to trust in christ is to be sprinkled with his blood his sacrificial blood that cleanses us from our sins and brings us and makes us part of god's new covenant people what Christ does for us that's what Peter is pointing us to and as God's covenant people sprinkled and cleansed by the blood of Christ we are then exiles in the world because our ultimate allegiance our ultimate hope and identity it's not found in an earthly country or an earthly culture or the the things that we do or achieve for ourselves our ultimate identity our ultimate allegiance is found in Christ alone In Christ himself, our perfect redeemer and sacrifice and king. In Christ, we are part of a new kingdom. We are part of a new people. And so, of course, we look like strangers to the world. Of course, we look different because we have a different master. We have a different hope, a different salvation, a whole new identity. In Christ, we are uh, part of this new people who live not for the world, not for affirmation, not to be accepted by others, but we live for Christ himself. And as we do so, we will look different to the world. We will look strange to them, even offensive to them. And so we will face their hostility. We will suffer for our identification with Christ. To be a Christian is to be prepared to suffer for Christ because that's what it means to live as an exile in the world. But as Peter makes clear in the rest of this letter, when we face suffering and hostility, we do so not with fear and despair. We do so with hope. Because why? Because remember, we have been chosen by the Father. We have been transformed and are being transformed by the Spirit. We have been cleansed by the Son. So think about this. Even as we face the the mountains of of hostility and persecution before us, even as believers in other countries face arrest and death and, and all this loss for the sake of their relationship with Christ, as we face those huge challenges, we need to remember that the triune God himself, the God of the universe, the Father, Son, and Spirit, he's worked powerfully to bring us to himself. And he is continuing to work to make us more like Christ, to use us to carry out his purposes in the world. So yeah, it might be hard. Yeah, it might involve persecution and suffering. But remember the one who has called us to this. Remember the one who is working in us and through us in the midst of this. Who can stand against that? Who can overcome that? The triune God. Peter highlights, and I'll continue to highlight in the letter, how each person of the Trinity has a role in our salvation, in our sanctification, and even in our exile here. So yes, we may be exiles in the world. We may face hostility from the world. But in Christ, we have a hope that transcends this world. We have a hope that will ultimately transform this world. And we can stand fast in that even as we face hardship and suffering. And it is this hope that propels the aim, the purpose of this letter. And we'll finish here with the aim of this letter, which we see in Peter's greeting, where he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, he gives a a somewhat standard greeting in this letter, but what he's doing is he's praying for these chosen exiles to experience God's grace, to know his peace, even as they live in the hostility of the world. And what's striking, if you read the full letter of 1 Peter, you'll see that Peter actually opens and closes his his book with this word of grace. He opens it here, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, but if you jump ahead to the end of the letter, to chapter 5, verse 12, Peter himself, he summarizes the aim, the purpose, the charge of his letter. He says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. See, Peter's purpose statement here, the reason he is writing this letter is so that elect exiles, so that chosen believers living in a foreign land so that we can know and we can stand firm in the true grace of God. And throughout this letter, he's going to expound the hope of God's grace for us, which comes to us in the person and work of Christ in whom we have a living hope and an eternal salvation in whom we can live in holiness and unity and humility, in whom we can even endure suffering for doing good for the sake of God's glory. And so in this letter, we see that Peter is charging believers, He is charging chosen exiles in every place, in every time, to stand firm, to stand fast in the hope of God's grace, even as we face the hostility of the world. And so the question to ask as we study this letter is, do you know this hope? Are you standing in this grace? Do you see the power and the wonder of what God has worked for us in Christ? Are you resting and rejoicing in the Father who chose us, in the Spirit who transforms us, in the Son who cleansed us? Because this world is not our home. This world is not our hope. But if we trust in Christ, And we have a hope that is far more sure, far more secure than anything in the world. In Christ, we have the true grace of God. So let us stand fast in him together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the true grace that you reveal in your word. That holds us up, that makes us steadfast, even in the face of hostility and persecution. So Lord, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we process it, as we apply it, just remind us of our true status, that we are exiles in the world. Guard us against thinking that we need to conquer the world or capitulate to the world. Help us to live faithfully with hope in Christ in the midst of the world. To have wisdom on how to engage with our neighbors, with our uh, family and friends that don't know you, with uh, the world around us. that is often so frustrating or disappointing and grievous. Help us to deal wisely with the grievous sin in our own hearts. Help us to do all of that because of the hope, because of the sanctification, because of the cleansing that we have in you through through your Spirit, according to your gracious sovereign choice. So, Lord, help us, strengthen us to stand in this hope together, and to share it with the world with joy and with humility. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What's well, close by standing and singing one final song together.
1: What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? our days within His hand, what comes apart from His command, and what will keep us to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand.
0: Lord wills, we'll continue to to gather each week to bless his name and to keep looking to his word about what it has to say for how we live with hope as exiles in in a hostile world. But let me just say this at the outset of the series, that uh, as we go through this and talk about exile and these different issues that Peter addresses, if there's ever questions that you have about any of it, if there's particular issues that this uh, book raises in your mind... Just know that the door is is always open to discuss any of those things, particular issues you see in the world, in your own life. Like, literally, the door is open. I have a doorstop in my office door right now. Uh, I'm I'm usually not in the office Tuesdays or Saturdays, but any other time, if you'd want to come and discuss some things, that that is always available to you, as well as our elders and and others in the church. So uh, we're grateful you're here. We hope that you'll continue to to stick around today and and greet each other and and to continue to stick around as we go through 1 Peter together. Uh, But let us go with this word of benediction that will become familiar to us as we go through this book. From the end of 1 Peter, uh, he says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.